Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? It's time for the tech news for Thursday, December 1st, 2022. Where did the year go? Yet again, I, at the end of a year, I feel like the previous year both lasted an eternity and was over in the blink of an eye. I don't know how all that is possible. I guess it's because Einstein found out time is relative. Man, that guy was the worst. Okay, let's get to it. I am, I'm kidding about Einstein. Let's get to the tech news so far this week. And um, it's getting a little quiet, which is fine. Usually we do see tech news quiet down toward the end of the year, gearing up to CES, and then things get back into crazy town. So first up, we have a scary situation here in the United States. I think it's pretty well understood by just about everybody that cyber attacks and cyber warfare 
are a constant threat. Really, they're constantly happening, whether it's from state-sponsored hacking groups that are working on behalf of a government or quote-unquote independent groups that claim to merely be aligned with some nation's goals, but not actually, you know, sponsored by that nation. Or maybe it's a cyber criminal organization, but we've seen tons of attacks on various high-profile targets all around the world. Well, the scary thing I read is that according to cybersecurity researchers, 87% of U.S. defense contractors fail to meet basic cybersecurity regulations. 87% failed. That is a sobering thought. InfoSecurity Magazine's James Coker explains that to get a passing grade, they must achieve a score of 70 on the Supplier Risk Performance System as designed by the Pentagon. Only 13% of defense contractors managed to do that. By the way, to be considered fully compliant, you would have to achieve a score of 110. So yeah, this is a little like flunking your big math test, except in this case, your math test describes how prepared you are for cyber attacks and security intrusions. And considering we're talking about key contractors in the supply chain for the U.S. Department of Defense and that we've had so much conversation over the last two years about the importance and delicacy of supply chains. This is a huge problem. Now, y'all, I have complained in the past about how the average person is pretty bad at practicing basic info security measures, but this is unfathomable to me. You would think that these companies, given the business that they are in, would be particularly careful as they would clearly be high-profile targets for hackers, but it appears the opposite is true. Now, in James Coker's article, which is called Majority of U.S. Defense Contractors Not Meeting Basic Cybersecurity Requirements, well, he explains part of the problem is that traditionally the U.S. government hasn't been super good at cracking down on these requirements. And, you know, you just have to look at kids to know if a rule is not being enforced, well, you might just feel like there's no need to observe the rule in the first place. Like, it's almost the same as no rule being there at all. Coker also points out that some of these contractors are, you know, smaller companies. They're not, like, huge defense contractors. And not all of them have the assets or experience or knowledge base that you find in some of the larger organizations. And that the learning curve to adopting proper security measures is a pretty steep one. It, it can be tough to do. And that may well be the case. But I maintain that when you consider the potential consequences of a security intrusion into the supply chain of national defense, having to buckle down in order to meet regulations is a tiny price to pay. While we're on the subject of info security, I have in the past recommended that people adopt password vault systems so that they can create and store strong passwords for all the online services they use. And I still think that's a really good idea. I use one myself. You know, you don't want to reuse the same password at all. You don't. I mean, you might want to for the sake of convenience, but you don't for the sake of security. You also want each of your passwords to be difficult to guess and that means making each password really hard to remember. Because by difficult to guess, we're not just talking about for humans, we're talking about for computers too. 
Now you can do something really clever. Like you can pick say three unrelated words for each service and you string these three words together and that makes your password. This is actually a really good way to make a strong password. But even then, as you add more passwords, like as you have more and more services that you are doing this for, it can get a little tricky to remember which string of words you used for which service. So password vaults help out in this case, right? Typically, you use one master password in order to access the vault, and then everything else is stored in the vault so you don't have to remember it. Well, one such password vault is LastPass, and unfortunately, hackers were able to access a cloud storage service used by LastPass, and they were able to access, quote-unquote, certain elements of LastPass users' information. Now, there hasn't really been any clarification on what that means exactly, like what information was accessed, and very little on if anything was even, you know, taken, but presumably any passwords accessed are heavily encrypted, which at the very least makes it unlikely that the hackers are able to do anything with the information they stole, at least not right away. Further, LastPass says it does not store master passwords at all. That instead, when you put in your master password, it goes through what's called a one-way salted hash. So this is an encryption process that is not reversible, and it generates this jumble of characters that can then be used as a key. Anyway, if you use LastPass, you might want to look into see just, you know, what, if anything, the service is recommending you do. It might be to change your master password, which, you know, you should be doing on the reg anyway. And I still think password vaults are a critical security tool for the average person, by the way. I actually use one myself. Uh, I used to use LastPass, but now I use a different one. So, uh, I mean, I didn't have any issues with LastPass. I just kind of switched to a different service. But yeah, I still think that it, they're all, you know, important elements to personal data security. A few weeks back, the Washington Post published an article linking a software company to a U.S. military contractor that raised a lot of eyebrows. So this software company is called Trust Core Systems. That's a T-R-U-S-T-C-O-R systems. And it's in the business of issuing digital certificates, which is an important part of making sure that the sites you visit are, in fact, legitimate. So certificates are what tell browsers that a site is trustworthy, that there's been this designated authority, or you know, hundreds of them actually, that ends up generating this certificate that says, yes, you can trust this website. So there are hundreds of these companies that, you know, issue these kinds of certificates and TrustCore is one of them. But according to the Washington Post, TrustCore has the same slate of officers, agents, and partners as a company that's been known to make spyware and is in turn connected to a defense company called Packet Forensics. Now, when you hear the name Packet Forensics, that suggests a company that's in the business of analyzing data transmissions, possibly to intercept communications and pass intelligence along to U.S. government agencies. So this starts to paint a pretty ugly picture. You got a company that's in charge of certifying trustworthiness that's tied to a company that is effectively spying on digital transmissions. The association has been enough for both Microsoft and Mozilla to stop trusting certificates from TrustCore, which kind of seems to have an ironic name now, doesn't it? 
and other browsers are likely to follow suit. Anyway, everybody's a spy, kind of like how in the John Wick movies, everybody is an assassin. I mean, seriously, the the entire economy in the John Wick universe must be assassin-based. I guess that's a, a discussion for a different podcast. Across the pond in the UK, more than 100,000 small businesses have joined in a class action lawsuit against Google, and they are seeking more than 13.5 billion British pounds in lost ad revenues. So these are mostly publishers and related businesses, and they're saying that they cannot compete against Google when it comes to the online ad business which is a business that Google definitively dominates. I mean, you you just can't deny that claim. It is obvious that Google dominates online advertising. But these companies also say that Google, through this domination, can essentially dictate pricing and other terms of ad deals, and that this affects the overall ad industry, that these other companies have no choice but to follow Google's lead because Google is so powerful and has so much weight in the industry that all terms are defined by Google and that Google's acting more or less as a monopoly, at least as far as settling these terms. So the lawsuit argues that these smaller companies have had to sell ad space for much less than they should, losing out on up to 40% of their ad revenue since January 1st, 2014. Now we'll have to keep an eye on this lawsuit to see where it goes. But in general, this falls in line with this larger trend we've been seeing in tech as more regulators, politicians, and even smaller companies are pushing back against big tech's dominant position in various markets. Okay, that's the first section of tech news. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, it's everybody's favorite guy to talk about in tech. Things are about to get musky. But first, this break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, 
for the ones who get it done. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune into what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back, and it's time for the Elon Musk section of the show, but this will be relatively short. We've only got a couple of stories. So first up, and this is a tiny one, but over in China, Tesla has had to issue a recall, or recall, I guess is how we should say that, on more than 435,000 Tesla vehicles in order to address a problem with side marker lights on the cars, which were determined that you know, under extreme circumstances could potentially contribute to uh, catastrophic car accidents. But a recall ain't a recall, at least not like it was in the old days, because in this case, the recall is actually an over-the-air firmware update. So owners are not going to have to take their vehicles anywhere. They're not going to have to go back to like the dealership or something and give up their car for any length of time. It'll actually be issued over the air. And it still qualifies as a recall legally, even though, you know, the drivers just, it just means that their their lights will behave slightly differently from one day to the next. Honestly, I do think it's super cool that cars have reached a level of sophistication in which at least some issues can be fixed just by sending out an update and you don't have to take it back. It is kind of odd that we have this sort of antiquated system where we have to designate that as a recall because as much as I dog on Elon Musk and on Tesla, uh, I don't think it's really fair to just say, hey, almost half a million Teslas were recalled in China because I feel like that paints a very inaccurate picture of what's actually happening. So I personally think we need to kind of update our definitions of what a recall is and isn't or have some other term for these kinds of fixes where recall does not bring up this idea that people had to surrender their vehicles or that Tesla had to take them back or anything like that. Anyway, next up is Neuralink, which is the Elon Musk-backed company that is developing brain-computer interfaces, or BCIs. Now, as brain-computer interface suggests, this is a type of technology that would allow a human to interact with a computer directly through thought, through brain activity. And Elon Musk has been known to get all futuristic with this vision and talk about how one day human intelligence is going to merge with AI. To me, that sounds like he's kind of falling into the philosophy of Ray Kurzweil, a known futurist who, (laughs) known, famous futurist, 
who has really pushed forward the idea of the singularity being on the horizon. I think he most recently said he thinks it'll be here by 2045. Uh, I just can't shake the feeling that these really rich people are just terrified at the thought that one day they are going to cease to exist. So they're kind of feverishly predicting and hoping for a get out of death free card. Maybe I'm being totally unfair. I could just be so cynical and skeptical that that's how I feel about it now. But, you know, they could be onto something, right? I mean, I, I don't want to dismiss the the concept, but we are definitively far, far, far away from being able to merge AI with human intelligence. Musk did say he hopes that the Neuralink interface will be implanted in a real human brain within six months or so, because so far the company's been testing this tech out on animals like monkeys and pigs. And to be clear, there are other BCI devices out there, including some that are, you know, attached to real human brains. People are really using these kind of uh, interfaces to interact with computers for very specific use cases. And Neuralink's design is particularly sophisticated. It's a really cool design, and it has benefits over other implementations of this technology, including a smaller surgical footprint, which is obviously important. You want to reduce or ideally eliminate the risk of things like infection or surgery complications, because uh, you have to implant these things into brains, which means you got to get to the brain, and that means going through either the skull or I saw one suggestion that had going through the jugular to feed a chip up into the brain that way. Either way seems pretty extreme to me, right? And, you know, it also is going to allow for wireless transmission of data because a lot of the BCIs that exist right now, you have to be tethered to a machine. Now, in the case of BCIs, the way we're seeing it used in a lot of cases are for people who have limited or no mobility, right? So being tethered to a machine, while not ideal, also does not have a huge impact on quality of life in the sense that these are people who otherwise aren't capable of moving anyway. But what they are able to do now is to use thought to control electronics in some way, either by moving a cursor and typing things out or some other form of communication where they're able to interact with their environments and with other people when previously they were not capable of doing that. And honestly, that is the use that I can get behind 100%. And that's, in fact, what the Neuralink teams are working toward, really. Elon Musk is talking about AI and human intelligence merging, but these teams are looking at a more pragmatic approach and one that could have a transformative effect on a person's life who otherwise would be facing incredible challenges that most of us can't even imagine going through. To me, that is the inspiring thing about this technology. Way, way more uh, ener energizing and, and inspiring than thinking that one day I'll be able to complete the New York Times crossword puzzle in pen in just five minutes. I don't see that as being the huge benefit. And lastly, in our musky section, Terry Breton, and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Anyway, this is an EU official in charge of implementing the upcoming Digital Services Act, or DSA, in the EU. Once that act has been finished and approved, that is, it's still not complete. Anyway, Breton has indicated that Twitter is going to have a lot of work to do in order to comply with EU laws to operate in the EU. The implication being that if 
Twitter fails to do that, it could potentially be banned from the EU. However, I should add that the EU really focuses on very large operating platforms or VLOPs. And as of now, Twitter has not yet been designated a VLOP. So it's possible that Twitter won't be won't be subject to the most restrictive rules in the EU. It, it still will have to follow some, but not maybe all of the super tight restrictions. I'm sure that Musk would much prefer not having to follow every single restriction that will be coming up from the DSA. Uh, Elon Musk actually had a meeting with Breton and it seemed to go pretty well. Musk said that he thought that the rules were all very reasonable, but this puzzles me a bit simply because of (laughs) what Musk says and what he's been doing appear to be at odds of each other. Because like the DSA is going to require transparent and thoughtful sets of policies on things. For example, like banning and unbanning accounts. But Musk just recently announced that, you know, thousands of banned accounts would be allowed back on Twitter. And there's nothing transparent or thoughtful about that approach. It, It seems at least on the outside, that Musk is ruling Twitter mostly by whim, which is antithetical to the requirements of the EU. But Musk also has said that he plans to hand control of Twitter over to some other CEO at some point in the future. So maybe by the time the DSA is actually in full effect, it'll be a moot point because Musk won't be the one calling the shots. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like the narratives here are, are at cross purposes with one another. The, the, the two things cannot be in alignment based upon what we have seen so far with Musk's version of Twitter. But yeah, confusing stuff. And that is it. That's it for the Elon Musk section this week. Thank goodness. We do have a couple more stories. Before we get to those, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Working remotely. Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. 
We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here... We have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Okay, got a few more to wrap up. Andy Jassy, the CEO of Amazon, has indicated that the Prime Video Streaming Unit of Amazon could potentially spin off to become its own company. This really confused me at first because, like, the headlines were saying Prime to become standalone company, and Prime refers not just to the streaming video service, but to the Amazon Prime program, which is the one that gets you, like, free shipping and all that kind of stuff for a yearly subscription. But yeah, anyway, he said this during an interview during the uh, Deal Book Summit, which just concluded. A lot of stuff happened there, uh, including some stuff about FTX and its implosion, but I don't want to get into all that. <laughs> Maybe I'll talk about that in an end-of-the-year episode. So it would be interesting to see Prime Video kind of spin off and become its own standalone company, but I've got a lot of questions. For example... If the video streaming division becomes a standalone company, would that mean an Amazon Prime membership would no longer serve as access to the streaming content on the standalone company, the separate company? Or would Prime members be able to use their membership both on Amazon and the standalone video service? If not, would that mean they'd have to subscribe to yet another streaming service? I don't know the answer to this. These are all just hypothetical questions anyway. Jassy did not outright say that this is definitely going to happen. He just said that over time, the company has looked at opportunities to follow this kind of approach. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen. I am very curious about the implementation and whether or not that would affect how you access either the Amazon Prime features that have become very popular at Amazon or the streaming video. Because if they split that out, then 
there are going to be people asking questions like, well, are you going to reduce the cost of Amazon Prime then? Because if I'm not getting the streaming video, then you're taking stuff away from the subscription. So why would I pay as much when you're taking things away? These are all questions that I, I just don't have answers to. Now, I'm sure most of y'all are familiar with the concept of focus groups in entertainment. These groups, which usually consist of, you know, just average people who are gathered together by market <laughs> analysts, end up watching early cuts of shows or films, and then they give feedback to studio representatives who might then take that feedback and send it to producers who might then phone up directors and demand that the directors make the movie less sad or whatever. You know, like, hey, what if Old Yeller just gets better by the end? That kind of thing. Now, in some cases, focus groups can really help set a project on the right path. Like, maybe it turns out that motives are muddled and people don't understand why characters are doing things. And it wasn't the intent of the director for that to happen. It's just how it came out in the edit. Well, if people are confused, it may not be a very satisfying experience. Maybe it's something the director can fix even by having an alternative edit, or maybe they have to go and do reshoots. Those can all be good things, but it also could lead to a director's vision being totally compromised. We've heard stories of that too, where a director essentially loses all control of a film or an editor. And because really, when you get down to it, the finished film, the editor's touch is at least as important as the director's, sometimes more important. Anyway, all that aside, Netflix is actually going to expand its focus group program. Right now, that consists of around 2,000 subscribers who are allowed to watch Netflix original content early and give feedback on it. So the company plans to expand this to, quote, tens of thousands of users around the world, end quote. And that's going to happen starting early next year. So if you're a Netflix subscriber, maybe you'll become a tastemaker then you can be the one to tell Tim Burton, hey, please stop messing with the Adams family's interpersonal dynamics so much. Ortega is doing a phenomenal job, but you're messing with one of the greatest families in American fiction. Stop it. <clears throat> I might be projecting. Rolls-Royce, the aviation company, not the luxury car, recently demonstrated a jet engine using hydrogen as fuel. So the engine was a Rolls-Royce AE2100A, and it was modified to accept hydrogen as combustion fuel. And, you know, it, hydrogen can be used as combustible fuel, uh, but it can also be used in stuff like fuel cells. Fuel cells use a totally different physical process from combustion. And Grazia Vitadini the CTO of Rolls-Royce said, quote, we are pushing the boundaries to discover the zero carbon possibilities of hydrogen, which could help reshape the future of flight, end quote. Now, it is true that burning hydrogen does not produce carbon dioxide. So that's great. But I will have more to say about combusting <laughs> in a little second. Further, Rolls-Royce said that they got the hydrogen by relying on renewable energy. This is also critically important. So hydrogen is the most abundant element in our galaxy, but hydrogen also bonds with other elements very, very readily, and it forms compounds. Uh, it, we typically do not encounter hydrogen in its pure form. If we did and we could just harness it, things would be way easier. Instead, we have to harvest hydrogen from some other source. Now, one way 
to do this is to add kind of a secondary process to something like natural gas mining operations because that produces a lot of hydrogen in the process. However, if we do that, then we tie our source of hydrogen to ongoing fossil fuels operations. That really just extends our reliance on fossil fuels, right? Instead of it saying like, let's let's move away from relying on fossil fuels and depend more on sources like hydrogen, it says, oh, well, while we're depending on fossil fuels, let's also get hydrogen. That means that we become less less likely to just move off of fossil fuels entirely. So really any solution, quote unquote, that just assumes that fossil fuels are still going to be part of the picture is not great, generally speaking, from an environmental perspective. But that's not the only way to get hydrogen. Another source of hydrogen is water. You know, good old H, that's the hydrogen, 2O. Two hydrogen atoms to every oxygen atom. If you run an electric current through water, you can break those molecular bonds and you release oxygen and you release hydrogen. But in order to do that, you have to generate an electrical current, right? You have to use energy to do this, to break these molecular bonds. So Rolls-Royce was looking at renewable energy systems like wind turbines and, uh, and, and tidal turbines to generate the electricity needed to harvest hydrogen. So that way they're not relying on like a coal-powered power plant, right? So that's good. That's a pretty good ecosystem to get your hydrogen through means that are not carbon emission systems. But here's where we start to encounter a problem because, yeah, burning hydrogen doesn't create carbon dioxide. However, burning hydrogen in our atmosphere, specifically at higher temperatures, does create other byproducts. Now, the main byproduct is water. And people say, oh, well, water, that's, that's fine, right? It's just water. And that's true. But it also, at high temperatures, can create nitrogen oxides. You know, because there's a lot of nitrogen in our atmosphere. Nitrogen and oxygen. So burning at these high temperatures can as a byproduct, produce nitrogen oxides. That is also a pollutant. Uh, it can cause respiratory problems. It's a big contributor to stuff like smog. So while you could convincingly argue that using hydrogen in jet engines is cleaner than typical jet fuel, I'd have to look at all the, the an analysis to, to make that conclusion. But it seems, you know, sensible it's still not totally free of pollutants. And I, I think it's a heck of an engineering achievement. Don't get me wrong. I think it's a great engineering achievement. And I, I don't want to, dis, to diminish that or dismiss it or anything like that. But I also don't want to ignore one pollutant just because this new approach could eliminate emissions of some other pollutant, right? We have to keep the whole picture in mind. Otherwise, we just trade one problem for a different problem. If we're able to reconcile all of that and to determine, okay, well, does this approach make sense? Um, is the pollutant significant? If it's not significant, then maybe it makes perfect sense to go this way. But if it is significant, if all we're doing is trading carbon emissions for nitrogen oxide emissions, then we still have some tough questions we have to answer. Still, Anything that is pushing us away from fossil fuels and toward an approach that is less environmentally dangerous, I think is ultimately a good thing. And that's it. That's it for this 
news episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you are all well. As I said earlier this week, uh, I am working on an end of the year kind of wrap up of the big news stories that unfolded in tech in 2022. If you have any favorites that you would like me to cover, let me know. Uh, Some of the major stuff I'm obviously going to tackle, like Elon Musk and Twitter obviously is going to have to play a part in that. Meta's crisis is going to play a part in that. Um, But, you know, if there are specific stories that happen within tech that you think are really important, even if they weren't necessarily huge, but you think they have important implications for tech or consumers or anything like that, feel free to let me know. You can get in touch in a couple different ways. One way is you can download the iHeartRadio app and you can navigate over to the tech stuff page. You just put that in the search field. And there you will see a little microphone icon. If you click on the microphone icon, you can leave a voice message up to 30 seconds in length. Let me know what you think. If you would like me to play the message in a future episode of Tech Stuff, just let me know that as well. I will only do it if you tell me it's okay. The other way, if you don't want to talk into a microphone, and I understand if that's how you feel, you can leave me a message on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to Brand New on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.